Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall and the host for today's podcast. Our guest today is playwright, director, creator, and co-artistic director of Rice and Beans Theatre, Derek Chan. Derek is the lead creator for a new exhibition that opens at the Firehall on May 11th and is on until May 22nd, titled yellow objects and he's here to talk with me today about that project and other interesting facts and fictions from his life welcome derek thank you for having me donna it's great to have you here so before we move into talking about this incredibly exciting project that we have here i'm so proud that it's going to be at the fire hall i wanted to talk a bit about you and how you found your way to vancouver and how you found yourself creating an exhibition about a story of what is happening in Vancouver, in, in Hong Kong. Yeah. I was born and raised in Hong Kong, and uh, I actually took a bit of a convoluted path to Canada and Vancouver. Um, at about 16 or 17, I, I decided that there has got to be more to see in the world. So I came across this international school, this series of international schools actually called uh, United World Colleges, one of which is actually in around uh, Victoria on the island. But um, as, a, as a rebellious teenager, I suppose, I just picked the farthest spot that I could, which was Norway. So um, with some financial assistance from, from the school, I, I spent my last two years of high school in Norway. And then in Norway, a teacher of mine uh, saw one of my theater projects and said, hey, there's this university out on the west coast of Canada that you might want to check out. They've got a pretty cool program that might fit the work that you want to do. And then, you know, at 18, 19 years old, I kind of just shrugged and go, all right, I'll apply. And um, so I got in. I got in. And uh, that was Simon Fraser University. And, um, you know, I, I did the theater program in uh, performance and creation and here I am, uh, 13 years later, I'm still on the West Coast. Well, we're really glad to have you here. <laughs> I'm curious if you remember, do you remember when you knew or when, uh, what was it that triggered your interest in following and pursuing a career in the work that you're doing? I mean, did you see something in Hong Kong that you went, okay, I have to be there, I have to be on stage, or I have to make it happen? Or Oh, I do remember how it all began. <laughs> My... <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, my my music and piano teacher back then, I was probably about 10 years old, must have been just about 10. She took me to see Les Mis on a big stage. And then, to be honest with you, it was way past my bedtime and I fell asleep about <laughs> like halfway through. And the gunshot on stage, if you know the show, yeah, kind yeah. of woke me up. And uh, the next day I had a math test and I was so sleepy I kind of did pretty bad and um, so that's how it began and then my parents put me into one of those children's musicals when I was about 11 and 12 and I did it for two three summers in a row at first as uh, as a hobby and you know Chinese parents Hong Kong parents they want their children to do as many extracurricular activities as possible but after three or four shows I kind of fell in love with theater, storytelling. And then looking back uh, now, working as a playwright, I remember even as a child, six, seven years old, I started writing little storybooks with characters talking to each other. That's usually how it happens. I find it really interesting that Les Mis, you fell asleep in it. I mean, Les Mis, although it's very a big, super commercial hit, it's actually about rebellion and it's actually got a, a political bent to it. Well, all theater, I think, has a political bent to it, but more, more so, more some than others. But um, I, I think it's kind of interesting that it was a musical that actually triggered this eventual path into creating work like you do with Rice and Beans Theater. It's, it's just a fascinating journey to me. It is a weird coincidence, I suppose, or an early seed planted in my head. And and so what did your parents actually think about this? I mean, a lot of parents have a lot of reservations about children pursuing careers in the arts because, of course, you might not make any money at it. 
I don't know if I make any money now. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's, I remember my yeah. parents going, you're going to try to support yourself being in the arts. And, you know, so I had to prove to them that I could, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Donna, that's exactly what my parents said to me when I told them I wanted to pursue theater as a profession, as a career. They said, Hey, Derek, are you sure? Cause you're not a dumb kid. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. And, and then, and then I told them, yeah. This is what I this is what I want to do for real, and I'm going to do it anyway. So I'm gonna go do it. And then at first they were they were quite unsure about it, quite apprehensive about it. But I think two three years on into into my program at at SFU, and then two three years on after I graduated, kind of starting. Doing work with rice and beans and, and and other people in Vancouver, they really realized that oh, Derek meant it when he said he wanted to do this for real, and he's doing all right. He's he's independent and he's doing the work that he wants to do. So they're pretty supportive now. They're quite proud of me. In in the sense that I've I've basically carved out my own career and followed my own path overseas. No less. Um, they're all in Hong Kong right now. So, yeah. And that must be very worrisome for you with them in Hong Kong. And, and we'll talk a bit more about that. Do, are, are there more? Do you have more? Uh, do you have siblings? And I do. And I do. Uh, did any of them pursue a career in the arts? <laughs> I have a younger brother. And funnily enough, uh, he, my younger brother is four years younger than me. And when it was his turn to pick a major in university out of everything, he majored in philosophy. So my mom kind of texted me or called me or whatever and just said, oh, my God, Derek, both you and your brother and neither of you are going to make any money. Like, we're going to have our pensions. We're going to be fine. But what about you, too? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But he's fine now. He has his own professional career back in Hong Kong and, and he's doing all right. Well, philosophy, that's interesting. You've come from a family of thinkers, I think. And questioners, obviously, because uh, the two paths that you've chosen, your parents must be thinkers and questioners as well. So, hey, I think they should be very proud of you. So you won a Jesse for Chicken Girl, right? I did. I did. <laughs> and a Jesse, for those who are listening who don't know, the Jesse is the local uh, theater awards that happens every year. And uh, Derek, I believe you won for director. Was that right? Or for creating it, playwriting, playwriting. Yeah, yeah. It was the uh, it was the Sydney J Risk Award for uh, outstanding play by emerging playwright, I believe. Right. It's a mouthful. Um, yeah. So it came last year, two years ago. I don't remember. A forever pandemic. ago. Yes. It seems yeah, since COVID happened. Yeah. Yeah. And Did that change your life in any it way? Made me, it made me really sit down and think about how I got to where I got to and really as a as a playwright as a emerging ish playwright it's not really just me this play it honestly I didn't write it alone like with with Heidi Taylor my dramaturg and with Pedro my co-artistic director and all of the people on the team during rehearsal during workshop processes they all had input yet like yes I you know, I put my name on the play, but it's not without so much help from the entire team. And also, you know, the people who have helped me along the way, 10, 15 years ago, when I first started, when I dreamed of wanting to be a playwright out here in English, Yes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that gets forgotten a lot. I mean, even in a, a scripted work, there's so much collaboration that brings the work forward, but on a new play uh, or a, a, a project that's a collaborative project, it's really is can't they can't be it can't be done without everybody's input and I think one of the things that's exciting about theater in Canada and I think um it's it's probably because we had to discover that we had our own voice the Canadians all, of all cultures had a voice uh and more so lately from the BIPOC community we're hearing and the Indigenous community in particular we're hearing a lot of new voices that are really exciting but a lot of this work is now developing being developed in a very collaborative way um, and I think that's one of the things that SFU actually specializes in is encouraging the people that are there in their programs to create in a collaborative fashion. Am I right on that? Is that? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, a lot, a lot of the courses and 
and projects that I did at SFU were very collaboration and devising forward. And that really helped shape what I do and how I do it these days. Well, and it's a wonderful change from uh, uh, one script, uh, a script with its only one vision, which is a very British kind of way of creating work, which I think actually in Great Britain, that's changed too as well. But the, the, it does uh, lend it to a lot more voices coming into the project. So I, I feel that that kind of work is so much more exciting than something that's just come out of somebody's brilliant mind. Not to say that playwrights aren't brilliant, that, that most of them are if they're really good. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. And it's such a great way to rethink the way we structure the rehearsal hall, our collaborative processes. And you know what? At least for me, I can't do it alone. I need people to work with. I need people. I need other brilliant minds to help shape the project. Which kind of takes me to um, the question that I wanted to talk about. I mean, COVID, one of the things I wanted to talk about, which is that COVID has had a huge impact on the performing arts. It's had a huge impact on the artists. It's had a huge impact on audiences. Um, Our processes have had to stop pretty much. Um, And I'm really curious about how we come out of this, whether we will uh, um, come out strong uh, or whether this pivoting that we've had to do to either stream our work or not do our work. What do you, what, what do you think, the result will be when we're finally ending uh, able to open our theaters. I think when we're finally able to reopen our theaters, we'll come out of this different. We'll come out of this having learned about how we can keep this liveness of of theater and keep this uh, interactive, almost storytelling alive with with all these things that we we have been quote-unquote forced to learn over the last two years or so i think we'll come out different i think we'll be able to make theater more exciting with so many more tools that us theater makers say can incorporate into our work and and yes do things on stage but now we can also incorporate other digital elements to round up the entire experience for the audience. Isn't that great? I think that's awesome. I think it's great. I think it'll be uh, a new new world of discovery for audiences as well, because I, I, I would love to believe that just like after the pandemic in 1918, people will flock back to the theaters and flock out there to, uh, I hope that that will happen. And, and I hope that we'll all be ready for them. <laughs> Uh, it's been a very trying time, I think, to try to to find ways to connect with artists and with audiences. And I, I really um, am, admire everyone that's tried to do that because it's been very hard, I think, because uh, it happened and all of a sudden we had to rethink everything we were doing. Yeah, both artists and audience. I hope that when we're able to get back into a theater, get back into a show together. I hope both the artists and audience who had to step away because of the pandemic will come back. Yeah, I kind of have a vision of an opening night with a full house and the first time we do this, everybody crying, actually. (laughs) Oh, we'll all be crying. Okay, moving on. When we first talked about this project, which was pre-pandemic, uh, it was uh, the project which has now become Yellow Objects. Um, it was called something else. And I imagine it probably had a different vision and you probably had a different vision in your mind about what it was you were going to create. Do you want to talk about yeah. that a bit? Yeah, for sure. I remember, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this, is, this has been a while ago. I remember when I first brought this project to you, I called it lengua, as in as in lengua franca, as in language, and also tongue. Yes. Uh, so it came from, obviously, my deep interest in incorporating all of my languages into the work that I do and investigating the power dynamics between languages and accents, especially out here in a, in a country full of settlers. And also with so many with so many languages spoken, you know, in our communities, 
and yet there are only still two official languages, English and French. And I remember in early drafts, there were already some elements of censorship incorporated in the story, if I remember correctly. And, and it was going to be a play, obviously. And then, and then Hong Kong happened. Right. And, and it just, I just felt this need to do something, do something for my home in, in, in any way that I can. I well, remember. And, I, and that's yeah. right. We did talk, uh, it was very much, and that's what actually intrigued me about the project in the, in the beginning was that it was be, what you have just said is what you what we were talking about and how amazing i mean in terms of the indigenous number of indigenous languages in this land uh and yes we're french and english primary primarily english out here with a lot of uh cantonese mandarin uh so many different languages being spoken in the greater vancouver area for sure but yes i was very intrigued about that um for for the reasons that at that point were really important to you to discuss and because of the work that Firehall does, I thought, perfect match. So, yes, I'm sure when I reached out to you and said, okay, so what are we going to do here? <laughs> um, and you said you had a completely different thought in your brain. You were probably going, oh, I wonder if the Firehall is going to really be interested in this. Um, but, again, uh, we were able to shift and go with you because it's such an important um, discussion to be had. And this, the, the storytelling aspect of the work that we do is um, again, and I know you know know this and agree probably agree with it, is meant to convey a message that says something important about what's going on in society now. So yeah, I, I do agree with that and I appreciate that. Uh, and you were right. I, I when I brought the the updated so to speak idea to you, I was like, oh my god, what's Donna gonna what's Donna gonna say? Like I I, I don't even know entirely what I was going to do yet. <laughs> Well, I was kind of going, what's the, I don't, I mean, I get this new concept, but how does that connect to the old one? And then I went, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. What needs to be said is what is the most urgent thing for Derek to be doing right now. Because I, I actually, uh, we were very interested in your work. <laughs> Thank you. Although the topic, I'm waiting for when we do that next play, the, the one, if you'll ever go back to the language play. But we'll see, won't we? <laughs> oh, I'll go back to it. Oh, you will. Okay. Oh, yeah. So yellow objects, let's go into that. Yellow objects, what, why that title? What does that mean? The title of the show, Yellow Objects, came from something that a Caucasian Hong Kong police force superintendent said at a press conference in 2019. Uh, his name is Vasco Williams, uh, disputing video evidence of police officers kicking and attacking a protester, a man on the ground who was wearing something yellow. And in, in the press conference, the superintendent Williams uh, said something to the effect of, we, we, can't, we can't tell for sure. It, it could have been an object that the, the officers are kicking. It could, have been, it could have been a yellow object. And as you can imagine, first, this is extremely problematic because of a police official dehumanizing citizens of Hong Kong, dehumanizing protesters and activists, despite video evidence. And second, understanding Hong Kong's colonial history, a, a, a white person in power calling a, a, a Hong Kong Chinese person yellow anything is just not okay. So since then, a few, a few people, quite a few people in Hong Kong and also artists and activists have taken on the task to reclaim that term, yellow object mm. or yellow objects. There, in fact, has been a few exhibition and, and other pieces in Hong Kong, well, that was before the national security law, that were named similarly yellow object or yellow objects. So that, well, I think that 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 is such a, as you were talking about the individual being kicked, um, it just, again, reminded me of what recently happened with uh, 
in, in the United States and, and, and that ruling that's just gone through, which is absolutely, uh, well, ruling, not ruling, the charge of murder uh, against yes. a police officer uh, with George Floyd. So that, that it's, it, uh, that, that haunt, the image that you've created just by telling me that created a haunting image. So I'm looking, I'm curious about all the images that we're going to talk about. So at that point you went, okay, I've got to write about Hong Kong. We're going to go back a bit here. I've got to write about this, what's going on in Hong Kong. And at that point, I can't remember how far we were. Were we into COVID at that point? I, I can't remember, but I don't know whether you were thinking, okay, now I'm going to write a play about Hong Kong. I think I started before COVID because I would have started around mid-2019. And then knowing that, okay, I have a year or two to shape this thing into a play. And then, of course, 2020 and COVID happened. And I was still writing it as a play for a few months into summer of 2020, probably. I and think then, so, Yes. Yeah, and then we're still talking about this as a play. Maybe, maybe, hopefully, things will be fine by twenty twenty one. I think we, yeah, we all we all believe that we did believe that. I still don't know whether things will be all right by September twenty twenty one, but yeah, we were very optimistic. I think <laughs> we were, we were, and and then and then a few months passed, and then and then I kind of sat myself down after another script workshop uh, facilitated by the NAC, the National Arts Center, with brilliant actors from across the country. You know, some people in Ontario and I think somebody was in Alberta and somewhere in the prairies as well. And and I just sat myself down and go, Derek, hey, seriously, you're, you're in summer 2020, I think. Right. Uh, or like fall 2020 now. And are you really going to fly a cast of seven into town or like five actors from somewhere else into town? Like, do you want that on your hands if something happens? And, and then I thought, no, 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 people need to be home. People need to be with their families need to stay safe. So let's, let's start thinking earlier rather than later. How else can I tell this story? How else can we manifest this story in the fire hall, in and around the fire hall. So, you know, and then it took me a few more months to to really think about doing yellow objects as an exhibition. And coming up with that, but working from the place, uh, um, working with the idea of the play behind it, so setting in, in, in motion as creating it from a play base, but turning it into an, an exhibition uh, so that, there are no actors on stage. There's nothing like that. Uh, it's it's more about everything's either digital or images. So how does one dramaturge? I'm curious. I have I, you have a dramaturge who's been great on this, Heidi, uh, and Heidi Taylor from Playwrights Theater Center. And I'm curious how that works in a, a workshop when you're actually dramaturging something that's actually going to be told through images. How would how did was, that work? Uh, <laughs> oh, it was such a great learning experience for me because my work in the last decade or so hasn't really been exhibition or object focused. It's mostly stage plays and other forms of theater. So in the workshops, I had to I had to really quickly work on and rewrite and adapt both the script and also my vision as a director to fit this new exhibition format. For example, the script, we're, we're going, we have recorded all of the actors remotely and we're going to place all the characters in different speakers located in different locations in the space so that, so that when you come visit the exhibition, you can almost hear ghosts or spirits of those characters, their thoughts, their memories left behind. And then and then a day or two into our recent workshop in March, I think, or, or if not a little earlier, I had this realization. I just turned to Heidi and said, this is like ready an audio play, isn't it? 
And then, and then I think she just she just looked at me and smiled and nodded and said, "Yeah, yeah, Derek, it is." Uh, so, so I basically kind of had to learn how to write an audio play as a playwright on uh, on that front. And then, as a director, I had to work with you know Heidi and all my designers about what it, what it means to arrange certain objects into certain configurations. And what it means to use found objects versus, say, if we had used uh, crafted objects. So we opted for found objects, and and shaping the space in one way or another. And then we also had to learn about audience flow, how to direct traffic, how to how to keep everybody distance. How do we how do we fit all of that? Into the artistic vision, into the world of this exhibition, to something that makes sense still. Well, it sounds to me like it's fabulous. Well, it was one thing. I think it was really great to have you be able to be able to come into the the space and the courtyard area and go. Okay, how do we use this space? And one of my favorite uh, remembrances will be you walking out into the courtyard and seeing the two stumps with the workers uh, uh, hats on safety hats sitting on the stumps and thinking that they had been an installation piece when in actual fact the hats had just come over the fence and we'd put them on the stump because we didn't know what to do with them. So uh, tell me a bit about the setting. I mean, how, when you were working with your designers, um, did you have recollections that you brought up from images that you've seen of Hong Kong? I don't want to give the whole thing away, but again, that kind of um, uh, changes, uh, well, not changes, will imply how um, people will experience the the, the exhibition. For sure. A lot of the images in this exhibition are sourced or inspired by footages that I've seen or news articles that I've read or just from people that I've talked to. And there there are a few very emblematic, widely circulated images coming from the movement in Hong Kong, for example, walls covered in post-it notes with messages of encouragement, of protest in the beginning to fading out to now after the national security law, making these acts illegal, essentially people putting on just simply blank post-it notes on the walls as a sign of mildly subversive protest. And, and also objects of significance left behind uh, objects that are, that are very significant from the protest, for example, a certain way of, arranging bricks on the on the roads to block police vehicles and and things like that so in a way i like to think that in a way in a rather hopelessly romantic way perhaps is that in the space and the courtyard we're almost creating a seance to conjure the spirits and the hopes and the fears of of Hong Kongers in Hong Kong and also abroad. Honoring, it's a real honoring, I think. Uh, yes. And I think people will feel that. I, my sense is from the a little bit that I know, uh, they will they, the the piece should take them back or take them to uh, if they're interested in what's going on or if they're following the papers or the press or whatever. Um, Okay, so once you pivoted uh, and you started to do this, was it difficult to to actually create the work with the actors? I mean, how did you do that? Did you record that through Zoom calls? Or how, how did you workshop with the actors once you got to the point to knowing we were going to do this? <laughs> oh, my God, Donna, how did we do that? <laughs> I think people think streaming uh, recordings and, and this kind of work is simple because and well, I think people quite often think that doing theater is easy, but this kind of work that's been going on by you uh, and by others that have pivoted and done um, a lot of streaming work, it's much more complicated than it looks. So you can give away some of those little secrets about how you workshopped it. 
Oh, for sure, for sure. Even I thought it would be easy,、uh, but as we all have learned, it wasn't. So, with a lot of a lot of, a lot of help from our technical team, we we did we did script workshops on basically on Zoom on something called Discord. If you play video games, you probably know what it is. It's a chat program that you can do text and video chat while you. Play video game. games and whatnot, yeah. <laughs> and what's great about that is that the the text chat stays on the channel, so you can always go back and go through your notes. Say if I have to give an actor a note,、uh, I can I can give it there, and they can just review it next time. And what we did for some script workshops is that I just open a video chat room and invite people who are into in, invite actors who are in the scene into that chat room, kind of like a Regular rehearsal, but just online. Like say, hey, you and you are called today, so let's jump in, go on camera, go on voice, and read through the scene. And also understanding that there will be some time delay because we're talking on the internet. And let's try to work it out as much as we can. And then when it comes to recording time, we would record. We would instruct the actors to record on a different program concurrently. So. We'll either ask them to rent a better microphone so that we can have a better sound quality, or we'll just buy something and send it to them. And hopefully, I don't know, in twenty twenty three, they can send it back to us. And、um, <laughs> so, so we have them record their lines on their own computers, but at the same time as their scene partners, so that we can keep some sense of liveness, some sense of interplay in the scene. And then when they're done, we do I don't know four or five takes, and then they'll send it to our sound engineer and our sound designer, and they will spend hours to try to match the sound qualities of everybody, everybody like five, six, seven actors, different equipment because they're all in different cities and have access to different things. And then hours and hours later, when our sound engineer is done, then our sound designer and and me as the director can work on timing and pacing. And then fine tuning how the scene moves along. And how have you been?、Uh, I'm I'm curious as to whether or not you've ever been in the same room with any of your actors. I have not seen any of my actors in person. And when you auditioned them or picked them for the work way back when, did you、uh, did they give you audition tapes or did you just? Approach them and say, "I'm doing this project. Are you interested?" Because I think it's exciting. Because how often do we get to work with actors from across the country? I mean, we may bring in one or two sometimes for a play or production, but it's very seldom. Or we might tour a work in, but it's very seldom that we get to see the, a diversity of talent from across the country. Yeah, this has been such a unique opportunity to work with people, actors that I've always wanted to work with, but. Too far away physically. This this project is a little different from how I or Raising Beans normally approach casting because of very specific language requirements, and also there is a certain level of political sensitivity to this project. I I basically reached out to people that I trust. Also, people that I know are brilliant actors,、um, and I've I've either met them before or I have worked with them previously.、Uh, so that's in 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 workshops for Yellow Objects or, or or in other projects. So that's kind of how I approached getting a cast together for this particular project. And have you ever been in the room with any of your designers until、I、you、have. came here? <laughs> I have been in a room with my designers, maybe once, until we got into that workshop at the fire hall. Well, partly because we couldn't really find a venue big enough, and back then it wasn't well, and back then it wasn't warm enough to meet outside. Yeah. So <laughs> it was、um, raining. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. So, so we had one meeting to talk about what we were going to do in the workshop. Otherwise, we had many, many other virtual meetings on Discord. So you've been online a lot. 
for hours and hours and hours and hours. I I have spent way too much time online, as I would like to admit. Well, as we we uh, as you arrived here, and I came down to say hello when you guys were beginning your work, it was sort of so great to just actually see somebody physically, <laughs> you know. To and I think that's something that our society is really missing um, now, and hopefully we can get back to being able to hug people or at least be in the same room with people. Let's talk about the pre the pre-showings that people can access. Yeah, let's. So, yeah, we started on April 19th with a series of digital content, a little pre-show teaser invitation almost from me to the audience that everybody can access at home for free on their own computers. So what they are are snippets from the show from the story, Yellow Objects, I've transposed a few scenes and a few shorter character arcs onto the digital platform in 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 something that's inspired by the visual novel genre. So essentially what it is, is that you can just go to risingbeanstheater.com slash yellow objects and just follow a couple of links and you can click through a story, make some choices, step into the shoes of a couple of our characters from the from the exhibition and get a sense of what the story is like. And then if you want to find out about the rest, come visit the exhibition. <laughs> that's a great ad. <laughs> but really, I think that's an, another, again, another interesting pivot that you've taken that so that if individuals are feeling uh, that they don't want to come into an exhibition or come to see an exhibition that they really want to just stay home, um, which of course we're all being encouraged to do. Uh, uh, they can still get a, an understanding of the piece. Um, and I think that's a great pivot, a great idea. What's your next project, Derek? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my next project. I am still dreaming about Hong Kong for my next couple of projects. One of them is going to be a pretty much a dissection of the national security law text itself. And this was going to be, in my dreams, going to be a collaborative, devised, generative process with a bunch of other artists with similar passions and care as as I do. Will you take, this makes me think back to, will you take um, yellow objects? Uh, are you hoping that this is something that you'll share? I mean, one of the things about streaming and recording things, of course, you can reach everywhere in the world. Are you thinking, is Rice and Beans thinking about... Um, making it more broadly available. This piece has a lot that needs to be heard by a lot of people. Um, and um, I hope uh, that it, it will be seen and considered by a lot of people. My concern, uh, my, I, it's not a concern, but the, I guess the other question is the impact on the people in Hong Kong. Will there be impact? And is that a question that we should have on this podcast? Yeah, it's not. It's not negligible, the possibility of yellow objects, the exhibition meeting counter protest activities, say. So we, as you know, because Donna, we have talked about this, uh, both Rising Beans and the Fire Hall and, and Playwrights Theatre Center, we have talked about, you know, personal and net security measures that, that we can help everybody stay safe. And that's that's what we can do, right? Um, the story needs to be told and, and the memories need to be kept alive. But what I'm interested in is, is whether or not there will be any sharing of this project with those who are there to oh. give them hope. I mean, oh. I think because if there was that that the world is watching and there are people that are trying to get this word out it seems to me that this is a hopeful 
hopeful endeavor that that could give people uh, maybe not hope that there will be positive change, but hope that the world is watching. That's a very good point, and and hope as as we have said a few times over over the last forty five or so minutes is something that we really. Really need. Even I need it. Sometimes I wake up on the wrong side of the bed in any given morning, and I think, "Well, everything is screwed." And then another day, I wake up and go, "No, Derek, this is your work. You have to have hope. You have to keep the story going, keep the memories going. This is a marathon. This is a marathon and a relay. Your your forty odd miles is not the end. You run your forty odd miles." To pass the baton to the next person, so they can run their forty odd miles, and then all of our children's children can run their forty odd miles, and maybe in seven, ten, fifteen generations, we can see something in the distance that remotely resembles the finish line. Maybe, hopefully, that's the hope. So, yeah, I hope that maybe people in Hong Kong. Or people who have to leave Hong Kong can 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 somehow, I guess, see this project and many many other projects about Hong Kong that's been being made overseas, so that so that they know they're not forgotten, especially those who have been disappeared or worse after after arrests or being hospitalized. Especially those people, and 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 we need to keep doing this. We need to keep keep it in everybody's mind. Like you said, the world needs to be watching. We need to be watching. We need to not just Hong Kong. We need to think about what we can do, and also not everybody's actions have to be. Big grand gestures, big things, small things, anything helps. Even educating yourself, that helps on what's going on in the world, what's going on in other parts of China, and also think about how our government here is or isn't doing anything about it. How our personal choices can help make a change. That's the hope. That's the hope, and that's that. I, the 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 work that we do, that our grandparents or our or, or we as ancestors will will do for the generations that going forward, is so important. And I, I kind of wonder. I was thinking that really COVID and the fact that it's been a global pandemic. Um, my my hope would be that that has increased uh, uh, the knowledge that we have of the world, and that we have a role. Every individual one of us. Has a role in uh, trying to one get not have another pandemic, but also to uh, deal with global issues, which big big time right now, of course, is climate change. But also how individuals who aren't the same are treated, uh, and I'm not sure that it's making that impact right now because people are getting very frustrated as they deal with pande- the pandemic. But the awareness of the world, I would hope. Has increased by this this disease, and the um, conditions that we're are in in this world have also, I hope, been people have been made more aware of them. Um, so your next project, you were saying, is going to be again about Hong Kong, um, and uh, I think it, it's one story is not going to tell it all, obviously. So, do you want to share anything about that, or? For sure, I don't know if I have a lot to share right now. Right now, I'm calling it speechless, and I'm thinking, wouldn't it be great to commission or devise with a bunch of artists, uh, writers, actors, designers, even dancers, filmmakers, visual artists across the board, uh, across the board, to create a series of protest performances, and they can happen over. A year, over a year and a half, or they can be a condensed evening of kind of cabaret style, kind of museum cabaret style performances when we can, you know, in about year, year and a half, two years. 
so yeah, this is kind of the format that I'm thinking a little, a little less of a, here, Derek Chen is making one thing and telling a story. <laughs> you know, it's more Derek Chen is stimulating a whole bunch of artists to actually create a whole bunch of stories. <laughs> exactly, it's like, oh, you're brilliant people. You you can do it better than me. Please go do this thing with me, and I'll tag along and and give you whatever you need, kind of thing. Now, I uh, wanted to ask you just a bit about Rice and Beans Theatre. Um, Have I ever told you the story of how we came up with that name? Maybe not. So this was back in 2010. I wrote a one act at the very in, during the very last year of my university career at SFU. And it was an adaptation of something of the, probably the Wizard of Oz, I think that went about, but, but it was about like going home and leaving home. Right. Something that I still write about these days. And and I was having a, a meeting with some of my collaborators and Pedro and I were housemates at the same time, uh, at the time. And then we were meeting in the kitchen and, and he would just like constantly chime in in the bedroom. And then after a while, I was like, hey, Pedro, do you, do you just want to come sit in the kitchen and and like be on this thing and, and, and talk with us at the table? <laughs> and I mean, by that point, we were already really good friends and have left together and went to school together and all that. Uh, and and so we graduated in the same year, 2010. And then we thought, yeah, it's time to do this, do this show. Um, especially because back then there weren't many resources for emerging artists of color to do their own work. So Peter and I thought, well, screw it. We're 20, five or whatever and we can do it all so so we tried to do it all and then i was applying for some alumni funding from sfu i believe and they asked for you know project name um lead person name and do you have an organizational name and all that and then i i just yelled down the hall and go hey pedro i can't just say Derek chan wants your money to do a Derek chan show right (laughs) what should we call our company (laughs) and then he kind of paused for two seconds and said Hey, what about rice and beans theater? You know, you're the rice and the beans. And then we kind of just like laughed for two seconds. And then, and then we thought, oh, yeah, okay. It was funny, but actually it kind of does represent us. So we stuck with the name over the years. And then of course, as we grew as co-artistic directors, as the company grew, as we kind of learned what leading and facilitating a company means in this community, we realized that that impulse to name the company Rice and Beans was actually a response to, well, first, how how it's so easy to be put in a box uh, as artists of color, but also second, our passion for food. Yeah. And then and then third, uh, like Pedro uh, pointed out and and likes to remind me, he said, I, I think rice and beans makes a complete protein or something. So yes, it probably does. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's nutritional. It, it's something that nurtures our stomach as well as, as our, our hearts kind of hopefully, hopefully like the work that we do these days. So before we wrap up, um, I have two questions I ask everybody. Um, I want you to uh, tell me uh, what your interpretation of a dramatic pause is. You can either show me one or you can tell me what you think it is. Maybe this. (laughs) I'm sure somebody has done that before. I think uh, Omari Newton did that, I think, but some people try to explain it. I mean, uh, when we came up with the title, it was we wanted something connected to what we were in. And uh, 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 it was a staff member, Jessica, who said, why don't we just call it dramatic pause? And I went, yeah, that's exactly what we're in. It's a huge dramatic pause right now. So. That's such a good, that's such a good name though. I love it. Well, and I thought your dramatic pause was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I tried. It's the space between the words. <laughs> uh, when, when, yeah, I know it's like when nothing happens, but actually a lot is happening and that's just what you did. So 
All right. So if you were given all the money in a grant that you asked for, or if you specifically were somebody said, okay, here, Derek, here's a huge chunk of change. What would you do with it? I would build a theater and use whatever the space needs and then use what I need to do a project or two and then see who else wants it. That's I can't do it all. I don't know how to spend that much money. <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting because every person I ask, it's about a project that involves a lot of people or sometimes it's about building a theater. But it's, very, it's a very kind of uh, artist, artistic response. It's, it's really about sharing and collaborating. And so I think your suggestion is a good one. And I, if, you, if I had any money to give you, I would give it to you. <laughs> Oh, you're giving me enough this time already. <laughs> All right. Any other thoughts you'd like to add before we wrap it up? No, thank you for having me. Hey, thank you for having me. I mean, thank you for us doing this. It's really great. I'm really glad you you were here on podcast. And I look forward to working with you more in the future. Thanks, Derek. Me too. Thank you, Donna. Thank you for listening to Dramatic Pause today. Dramatic Pause launched in the third month of the pandemic, and since then we have been speaking with artists about their COVID experiences and their love of the arts. At this time, over a year into the pandemic, countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrators, arts marketers, and production teams are unemployed and feeling the impacts economically and emotionally of this shutdown. The impacts on small and large communities, both rural and urban, has been immeasurable and will be felt for years to come. At the fire hall, we have a COVID safety protocol in place, which will increase when we are allowed to welcome audiences back into the theater. Until that time, please stay safe and don't forget us. We are here waiting to reconnect in a face-to-face, two-meter-apart, masked manner. Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, the City of Vancouver, and the fire hall's many individual supporters. If you have feedback or questions from this podcast, please direct it to firehall at firehallartcenter.ca and we will respond as soon as possible. Thanks. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Arts Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982 and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies.